in those few verses right there. It's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. My mom used to let me play. This is probably something that parents will go, <gasps> but remember when we had those, uh, those mercury thermometers? And uh, I remember one time it broke uh, on, the, on the floor of the, of, the, uh, of the bathroom, and she let me play with the mercury. And if you've ever played with mercury, you can't keep hold of it. You know, you push down, it splits up, and you, you almost can't grasp it. Death cannot grasp Christ. He is the author of life. It's wonderful. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. As we make our way into a new section in the Gospel of Matthew, these last three chapters are focused and fixated on uh, the march to the cross. We're going to be starting in verse 1. There are a lot of different death preparation rituals around the world. I mean, just think of ours. Uh, some of ours are, uh, are we, we gather together at a certain plot of land and, and eulogize the person, talk about the person, remember the person. Um, we, we typically put the body into the ground in various forms. Sometimes we, we wear black and we take a little bit of dirt and throw it on the casket. These are all rituals that we have in the Western culture here. But around the world, preparation for death and burial ranges amazingly wildly. For example, in Tibet, they practice what is known as sky burial. In in this ritual, the deceased is dismembered and then left on a mountaintop in the wilderness. It is believed that the vultures who consume the body take the body up into heaven. Until recently, the Dani tribe in Papua New Guinea... Each time an immediate family member died, a female member of that family had to amputate one of their fingers, believing that that internal that their pain expressed the internal pain of the death and appeased ancestral ghosts. The Japanese Buddhists between the 11th and 19th centuries practiced what is called sokushinbutsu, or self-mummification. The preparation process for his, this uh, a Buddhist death would take place sometimes 3,000 days in advance where the monk would start eating less and less and start feeding on needles and resins and seeds. When the monk was ready to die, he would enter a stone room and slowly take away all of his uh, fluids by drinking less and less, shrinking and dehydrating his body until his death in that room and it would be naturally preserved by mummification. These are all startling ways people prepare for death. In our text today, we have another death ritual. But it's startling for another reason, which we'll find out. Look with me at Matthew 26, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days, the Pentecost is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Oh, Father God, as, as I expound these scriptures, I pray to you, Holy Spirit, that you will take these words and use them to change our lives, change our, our desires, change our hopes, change our dreams, change the trajectory of our lives. Your word is powerful and will not return void. Pray that that be true today in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just to reorient us where we are on Passover week, we're here on Tuesday in the book of Matthew. And with these words, those first words that you read, we read this morning, when Jesus had finished these things, with those words, he closes, so to speak, a chapter of his ministry, the, the official teaching ministry of his, of his ministry there on earth. Jesus has come to the end of his public teaching and to the beginning of what we commonly or sometimes refer to as the Via Della Rosa, the, the way or the road of suffering or death. And, these, and in these verses, I want us to notice three things. The first thing I want us to notice is that God had a plan all along. God had a plan all along. On the radio program, and maybe some of you have listened to this, This American Life host Ira Gross follows the lives of several people during which they, they are calling it Plan B. Their life is on Plan B. He asked a room full of a 100 people to think back to the beginning of their adulthood and what their plan was for life. He called that Plan A. Then he asked those who are in the room who are, how many of them were still following Plan A. Only one person raised their hand. And ironically, she was 23 years old, so she doesn't even know. <laughs> I wager that if we had the same test done here, that not many of us would raise our hands saying, I'm still on plan A. It worked out exactly as I thought it would when I was 21. Maybe some of us would raise our hands with plan B. 
Maybe some of us plan C, myself plan D. But what I think God wants us to understand here, first of all, is that's, that's not the way he operates at all. He's never, ever, ever on plan B. He's always on plan A. We see that here, that he had made a plan from the beginning of creation to save, to redeem mankind, to save you and me. To reconcile his crowning creation, humanity, to himself. Through his atoning death and life-giving resurrection. And here we see he's on the verge of completing that. In two days, he tells his disciples. In two days, the Son of Man will be given over to the high priests and will be crucified. Now, if you remember, this is the fourth time that Jesus has told his disciples about his death. He told them about it back in chapter 16, right after Peter's confession of that he is the Christ. In chapter 17, he tells them again. In chapter 20, he tells them again. And here again in chapter 26, he's telling them about his plan from the beginning of creation. This is his plan all along. This is God's redemptive plan that he, he's talked about and, and started before time even began. The redemption plan is precisely controlled by Jesus. Did you notice that in the text? Jesus says in two days. He knows that it starts on the Passover. But the high priests say, let's wait till after the Passover. Let's not do this because that might cause a fervor. And we know that it started on the Passover. God is in control of his own plan. You see, on Thursday of Passover week, that's an important day in the Jewish calendar. That is the day when Passover starts. That is the day when, when Jewish families take their, their unblemished lamb that they are going to slaughter to the priests in the temple. And at precisely 3 p.m., they begin to slaughter these Passover lambs. They begin to kill them and give them back to the families so that they can spread the blood on their lentils and doorposts. Have you ever stopped to think about the timing of the crucifixion? That at that very time, at that very hour, Matthew in chapter 27 tells us that Jesus was crucified and on the ninth hour, which is at 3 p.m., at the ninth hour, He breathed his last and gave up his spirit. At the very moment that the chief priests in the the temple start slitting the throats of the sacrificial lambs that was to symbolize the coming of the one sacrificial lamb, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, dies. That's God's plan. It's perfect. He's totally in control of his plan. He never altered his plan. From Genesis 3, seed of a woman to crush the serpent's head, to Isaiah 53's suffering servant. From Leviticus's sacrificial system that he put in place to prefigure and foreshadow Christ, to the snake being raised up in Numbers 21, he knew precisely what he was going to do. God is in control. 
plan of God is plan A. Always. That Jesus, the Son of God, would die to absorb the wrath of God for the sin of people. Yet we also see the plotting of men here. We have the perfect plan of God. Yet we also, in verses 14 through 16, see the, the plan of man. Here we see Judas conspiring to give Jesus up. In verses 3 through 5, we read about the chief priests and elders plotting to kill Jesus. R.C. Sproul comments on this and writes this, Stop to think about it for a moment. The priests of the land were trying to figure out a way to kill the Son of God. I do not believe we can fully grasp the egregiousness of what they were doing, he says. God himself had taken on human nature and appeared in human history to redeem his people. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. But these people hated him for it. With every fiber of their being, he writes. Was there ever a more literal, diabolical conspiracy in the world, in the history of the world, he writes. Yet, in the sovereignty of God, both Judas and the high priests are playing a role in God's plan A. Have you ever thought about that? This is what Peter is saying at Pentecost that we read as our public reading of Scripture today. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, comma, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So is it God? Or is it man? All of man's plotting works in some way, some mysterious way, in God's plan A. We see this in Joseph's life, don't we? In Genesis, that life where his brothers plotted to kill him, to get rid of him, sent down to Egypt, was used in mighty ways to save many people in Egypt. And when his brothers finally come back around in his life at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, and Joseph reveals himself to them, and they're scared because what they're gonna, he's going to do to them because he has all this power in Egypt. And he looks at them and he says, Don't you understand? What you meant for evil, God intended for good. It's all God's plan A. Joseph got it. This is God's plan. Even my suffering. And what is so frankly comforting is that's how it works in our lives as well. That's comforting. God tells us in Romans 8.28 this very thing. All, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what God is telling you and me today. You might think that your life is on plan D. But I'm here to tell you from Scripture, that's not true. You're still on plan A. He's working all those things, all those regrets, all those sins, 
all the mess-ups of your past, and he's working it in his plan mysteriously to us, but perfectly to him. Sean Connery is famous for, in Hollywood for turning down memorable roles. Perhaps most famously, Connor, Connery turned down the part of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. Connery was the director's first choice, and they went to him again and again and again, offering him more and more money. The final offer that they gave to him was they wanted to pay him $30 million for the, for the role, and, and a percentage of the box office, 15% of the box office. Had he taken that, that would have been almost half a billion dollars. Years later, when Connery was asked about that, he revealed that he didn't take the role simply because he didn't understand it. He said, I read the book, I read the script, I saw the movie, I still don't understand it. Brothers and sisters, like Sean Connery, sometimes we look at our life and we go, I don't understand it. But it's God's plan A for you. I don't get it. How can that be working towards good? Possibly. How could it possibly? I look at my life and I think, how could those things possibly be working towards good in God's perfect plan? But they are. That's the wonderful grace of our God. We stumble and trip our way along in life. We are caught in what Hebrews 12 tells us is sin that so easily entangles, but we will never be on plan B. So we see the plan of God, the plotting of men, but we also see his preparation for death here. His preparation for death. That's what we see in verses 6 through 13, probably the bulk of what we read today. And what Matthew does is he, he gives us a flashback to the previous Saturday, the Saturday before Palm Sunday. See, John places this dinner, the Gospel of John places this dinner six days previous to the Passover. But the Holy Spirit directed Matthew to wedge this story between what the priests do and what Judas does. And that should make us sit back and say, why? Why would the Holy Spirit be doing this? I think it causes us to ask three questions. Three questions. First of all, the story being here causes us to ask the question, what is Jesus worth to you? What's Jesus worth to you? Matthew tells us that there was a dinner party at Simon the leper's house in Bethany. Bethany was kind of a home base for Jesus and his disciples when they were in Jerusalem over the years. And Jesus and his disciples were, were invited over to Simon the leper's house. Now, we assume that this leper had been maybe cleansed by Jesus. He's certainly in a house and not separated from the society, so we assume that he, is, he is, uh, has been cleansed in some way. And the party is interrupted by a woman. In John's Gospel, we learn that this is Mary, Lazarus' sister. 
And she enters and pours a, a very expensive perfume or ointment, it says, on Jesus' head. She takes this alabaster jar and breaks the neck and pours it on his head. Now, in the Jewish culture, it was customary when a person dies that the body be prepared with perfumes and oils. So whether she knew it or not, and we're not sure she did, whether she knew it or not, she was preparing Jesus for his death. As a matter of fact, that's, that's what Jesus points us to. She's preparing me for burial, he says in verse 12. But by the disciples' reaction, we see this perfume is incredibly expensive. They could have, it could have been, been used, the profits from it, to, to feed the poor. Mark tells us that this perfume was worth 300 denarii, almost a year's wages. Many commentators believe this to be her inheritance. She was given this as her inheritance. This was her her 401k, if you will. In other words, this, what she did, what she had in her hands, was the security in her life. Now, what do you look for or look to for the security blanket in your life? I want you to keep that in mind. When things are tough, what do you look for? Now, it's interesting that Matthew wedges this scene between the plotting priests and Judas. On the one hand, we have the priests who think Jesus is worth absolutely nothing. Right? Nothing. Let's kill him. On the other hand, we have Judas. Right? The other bookend, we have Judas who thinks Jesus is worth at least something, 30 pieces of silver. And then we have this woman who thinks Jesus is worth absolutely everything. Nothing, something, or everything. That's the questions that Scripture keeps asking us over and over again, isn't it? What's Jesus worth to you? Is he worth nothing? Is he worth something? Or is he worth everything? Let's think back just for a moment on, on how Jesus presents it. Is he worth more than your mother and father and sister and brothers? You remember that parable? Is he worth more than burying your father? Remember when he said that to that man from Nan? Don't. Don't bury your father. Let the dead bury their dead. Come and follow me. Is he worth more than leaving home for? Is he worth more than the pearl of great price? Is he the treasure you find in a field and joyfully sell everything to buy that field? That's what's on display here. The woman takes her 401k, her life security blanket, and joyfully gives it to Jesus. Joyfully. She's showing how much Jesus is worth. She trades her her security blanket for Jesus. The Apostle Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He had everything, it tells us in Romans. Good life, respect, Power, prestige. 
Remember what he writes in Philippians? I count it all as loss. Some translations, rubbish, dung. I count all those things that I had, rubbish, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Is that you today? Where are you on that scale? Nothing? Jesus isn't worth anything to me. I'm not gonna, what do I have to sacrifice for Jesus? Nothing. Something. I hope you're at least there. He's worth something. I, I think most Christians are there. You know, Jesus is nice to have in my life. Jesus is helpful at times. Or is it everything? I'm going to sell my life for him. I mean, that's what great sermon illustrations are all about, right? Showing how this missionary gave everything. That's Jim Elliott. That's Adnaram Judson. That's William Carey. David Brainerd. We love this. We love to hear about it. And, you know, it raises the hairs on the back of our neck when I, when I tell you about them. But are you willing to live there? Because that's the point of those sermon illustrations. It's to move you from, he's worth something, to edging over, edging over. And by the way, brothers and sisters, that's called sanctification. That's called maturity. That's called growing in Christ. Nothing, something, and somewhere between something and everything. And God wants us to be moving in this direction. A father took his son to a public auction. When they were outside the door, he cautioned his son and said, don't raise your hand even to itch your nose. You might purchase something you can't afford, he says. Always remember this, he told his son. Whenever you go into an auction, make sure you know your upper limits. It's kind of how we approach Jesus, isn't it? I've got my upper limit. How much time he can require of me. How much of my life he can ask. And then we hear the gospel again. How Jesus set aside everything for us. How he took the full weight of God's wrath so that we don't have to. How he gave up everything, including his life. He is the ultimate sermon illustration. How he endured the pain and separation of hell for us. And when we hear that, you know what the Spirit does inside of you? Inches you this way. A little bit at a time. You think God, Jesus is worth something. I want you 
to know he's worth everything. He changes our hearts and the Spirit takes our upper limit and dials it up just a little bit more each time. Until we can sing wholeheartedly and honestly those words of Isaac Watts, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's where he wants us to live. And that's what this woman shows us. The second question that this woman in this section asks us is, what do you believe the gospel does? What do you believe the gospel does? What's the purpose of the gospel? R.C. Sproul tells us of a time when he went preaching in the inner city in Cleveland. He writes, it was an area that was afflicted with all the problems of urban blight, drug abuse, crime, so on. He says, the minister of the church had been there for many, many years. But he told me that over the time span he had been there, there had been more than 15 associate pastors that had come and gone. When I asked him why he had experienced such high turnover, he explained that young ministers would come out of seminary with zeal to do good works, but when they came to the inner city of Cleveland, they rarely lasted more than a couple years because they were defeated by the poverty, the squalor, the crime, the hopelessness. That made me curious as to how he'd been able to stay there so long, so I asked him about it. And the pastor said, because of what Jesus says, the poor you will always have with me, with you. I didn't come here to eliminate poverty because I knew it wasn't going to happen. I came here to minister to people in spite of it. If you look at the reaction of the disciples here to what the woman did in verses 8 and 9, look at what they say. What a waste. You could have, you could have fed Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that are in poverty. The disciples' reaction to a generous gift reveals what they think the gospel does. Like this man's associate pastors, they think the gospel solves society's ills. Ah, that's it. This is what the gospel does. In a way, the gospels were thinking like modern-day theological liberals. Liberals think the gospel is the penicillin for the modern-day spiritual or, or uh, social ills. It gets rid of pain. It gets rid of suffering. It gets rid of poverty. But here Jesus is saying, no. The poor you will always have. Now that doesn't get us off the hook, so to speak, of helping people in society. James is clear about that. Of course we are. But those things are very secondary to the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? Those things are secondary to the gospel. The gospel does not come to solve society's problems. It comes for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to solve the problem of our sin. That's what the gospel does. That's all the gospel does. Oh, sure, it has other secondary implications in our lives, but that's what the gospel does. We must be careful that we do not 
we do not misuse and misunderstand the gospel. That we do not begin to socialize the gospel. That is so tempting in this culture, brothers and sisters. We do not want to become evangelical liberals, even in our own hearts. And by the way, that's where it lives. That's where it lives. I would say that everyone in this room has a problem with that in their own heart. We must guard against the thought that the gospel gives you a nicer, easier, more comfortable life. That's socializing the gospel. It doesn't. It didn't, doesn't come to do that. The gospel is not given to us to offer you health. It doesn't do that. The gospel does not promise you the answers to all the whys in life. It doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, it might give you more questions. The gospel does not give us the moral high ground in, in society. The gospel does not give us a political platform. The gospel does not promise us big churches, big wallets, and big egos. The gospel is given to restore a relationship with God the Father and give us hope beyond this life. That's what the gospel does. The last question this text asks of us is what will your legacy be? What's Jesus worth to you? What does the gospel do? And what's your legacy going to be? Percy Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, I recommend it to all of you, is about a traveler who happens upon two trunkless legs of a statue in a desert. And on the pedestal of that statue is, in, is inscribed, according to the poem, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. The poem concludes this way. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Do you get what he's saying? It's a biblical truth. This mighty king who ruled vast lands at one point, who commanded legions of armies with absolute power, changed the course of probably civilizations, he thought his legacy would last, last forever. He built this big statue with those bold words on it. And a lone traveler stumbles upon it. Doesn't even know who Ozymandias is. That's not what we want our legacy to be. Ask a 20-year-old why they call it Carnegie Music Hall. I bet they won't be able to tell you. Most people who come to Acadia National Park have no idea that Rockefeller had a huge part in that. No idea. They don't even know why they call them Rockefeller's teeth on the side of the road. When we were down in Washington, D.C. this past spring, we were walking around and there are literally thousands of statues and plaques with people's names that we have no idea who they are. But at one time, they were Ozymandias. My mother would say to me, Blake, even though I've lived a full life, 
I know that I'll be forgotten in two to three generations. But the people in my family tree. And then she used to say, only the things that you do for Christ lasts. Sorry. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. The woman came and showed her amazing love for Christ and she gave everything to and for him. She served him and prepared him for his sacrificial death. And Jesus says, because of that, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told of her. Several years ago, an online magazine asked the question, if you could summarize your life in six words, what would they be? The response to this was so overwhelming that it almost crashed the server. They're gathered in a book called Not Quite What I Was Planning. They range from funny to ironic to inspiring to heartbreaking. One person wrote, The psychic said I'd be rich. (laughs) One person wrote, Tombstone won't say had health insurance. Another person wrote, one tooth, one cavity, cruel life. One person wrote, one long train into darkness. But one person wrote, thought I would have more impact. Brothers and sisters, do you really have, want to have more impact? A legacy that lasts beyond your death into the generations. Only what you do for Christ will last. Everything else is Ozymandias. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your wisdom in this text. And I pray, as now as we come into your Lord's Supper, Lord, that you will minister to us, encourage us, let us know how much you love us through those elements and through the rich, rich symbolism and spiritual depth that is there. Remind us that you gave everything. And nudge our dials a little higher. In Jesus' name. Amen.